0: Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your God. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host and King of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and I am using a new camera tonight. So uh, I still have the old camera, which uh, now allows me to do this. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, here in my second chair this evening, we have my cat Ronan. A.K.A. Roni Pony. I will call him Ronan on screen, because calling him Pony seems a little bit weird to people who have not been locked in an apartment with me for most of a year. I will also now put this delightful Roman helmet on Ronin, and he is gone. He hates that helmet. He has always hated that helmet. I don't know why I torment him so. Actually, I do know why. Because when I get him to put the helmet on, it's hilarious. Um, but at one point, I tried to put that helmet on Nora, the other cat, who may also jump in this chair at some point, And she knocked it behind a bed, and it only recently resurfaced. So, uh, the cats don't like the helmet. But it's fun. And if I can get a Roman helmet... On my cats in the middle of the stream, I will do it, because that's hilarious and adorable. And you will all tell your friends that there's a cat wearing a Roman centurion's helmet on my stream. And maybe that'll get him to show up. Anyway. Tonight we are once again flying solo, and we're going to be doing a little bit of a uh, product review here. Um, Recently I had my 25th birthday... And so, you know, along with that came birthday gifts, and one of them, uh, which came from my good friend Namira and uh, Spoonie Sage, who uh, works with her on her stream. Uh, For anyone who hasn't tuned in or, you know, wasn't around in the early days where I talked about the stream a lot, Namira uh, does great video game streams where she plays horror games. It's a lot of fun, great community, uh, fun to hang out in. And, uh, anyway, they they gifted me Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, so we are going to be discussing this bad little boy tonight. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the discussion. Here we go. Go ahead and hide the uh, the cat cam there. Until uh, a cat shows up to actually fill that little void. So, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. This is the second true rules expansion that we've had for 5th edition. Uh, I've heard people describe this as a patch for 5e. That's definitely one way to think about it. Um, An expansion is probably the way that I would go. There are some not insignificant overhauls that can be added into the game courtesy of this particular book. Um, so all of that is is—it's in there. Um, it, it's, it's there for you to use or not use. And we will be going through all of it this evening as we uh, take a look at Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. I'm going to be following along on this PDF here. And I'm also going to have my physical copy open in front of me, because the PDF is there for your convenience, the physical copy is here, because I like having physical copies, and I don't like reading off of screens for long periods of time. Starting off, uh, one thing I want to say here, there's a lot of filler in this book in certain sections. Um, now some of this, I understand why it has to be here. Uh, like, you know, this section here about, you know, what you'll find within, um, just tells you all the different stuff that's going to be in there. Um, And then there's some really weird stuff about rules here that I don't think is necessary. This is, maybe it's a major nitpick on my part, but this is all stuff that's covered in the, the... dungeon master's guide i I don't see anything here that's brand new or that really kind of answers any questions here um i mean the advantage disadvantage thing it's it's good that it's here because you know if more than one factor gives you advantage or disadvantage on a roll, you have it only once basically advantages and disadvantages don't stack you don't get to roll four dice and pick the highest or, you know, roll four dice and pick the lowest. It's, it's just either you have advantage, you have a regular roll or you have disadvantage. Advantage cancels out disadvantage. Uh, so if you have something that gives you advantage, something is giving you disadvantage, regular roll on and on. And then reaction timing, um, I don't know, that's, this right here, I don't know why that needs to be in there. Um, You take a reaction when it says you can take a reaction. That's just kind of the way that the mechanics work. Like, if it takes a, you get one reaction per turn. And in that reaction, you can do something that takes a reaction, like an opportunity attack, a shield spell, a defensive duelist uses your reaction, uh, uncanny dodge, evasion. If it says it takes a reaction, it takes a reaction. So, yeah. Then there's some stuff here talking a little bit about Tasha. I don't really pay attention to these kind of side notes because I don't play a lot in Forgotten Realms, so having little details about Mordenkainen and Volo and Tasha is not really a priority, or or Xanathar, Um, although Xanathar might be an exception because I do love me some Xanathar. Beholders are my favorite monster, for anyone who doesn't know, so... I mean, it's cool to have a little bit of information on Xanathar, but still. In in general, I, I prefer, like, the, the matter in Volo's guide about beholders to what little tidbits I'm going to pick up from Xanathar in Xanathar's guide. And then there's just more here about, you know, all, all this stuff. And then the last one, have fun. Okay, yeah. We're playing this game. We're going to have fun, okay? There's... I feel like I'm being overly negative. I I should stop that, because this actually is a very good book. There's going to be a couple things that I'm nitpicking here to begin with, but in general, this is a really great book. I, I really like some of the stuff that's added here. So starting off here, this is kind of the last thing I'm going to bitch about until we get to the very end. But I, I'm a little bit bothered by this particular character options section. Um, Namely, what, what really bothers me is the ability score increase and what's the other one here? Yeah, ability score increase. And then, uh, the other one, uh, kind of the variable trait. Uh, skill aspect of this. Uh, I'm, I'm beating around the bush here, but basically what this tells you right here is that the race you pick doesn't actually matter in the grand scheme of what you, what like what what advantages you have or what ability scores get increased. So for anyone unfamiliar, first of all, welcome to uh, Rollin' Bones. Uh, this is an odd place to begin with, uh, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, but I'll explain it to you. Your races in 5th edition grant you certain bonuses. So, the example used here dwarves get a plus two to their constitution. And that's just kind of a general rule. Now, what this book is saying is that, you know, these races that you find in the player's handbook. Uh They are the archetypical or the archetypal versions of that race. So this is saying that dwarves don't necessarily get a bonus to their constitution if you don't want them to. You can switch that out for whatever you are,, uh, you know, looking to build. And I understand what they're going for here. they're they're trying, to make these unusual builds that a lot of people do, it's kind of offbeat builds. Like if someone is playing a half-orc bard, they're trying to make it so that that can be as viable as your uh, your min-maxed half-elf bard. You know, you can you can change things around so that, you, or you can change your uh, your bonuses around so that your half-orc is functionally a half-elf, but in appearance, a half-orc. Now, on one hand, this is a very small thing. As a DM, I don't have to allow this. Uh, And as a DM, you don't necessarily have to allow this. But, basically, what this is saying is that the race that you pick is just window dressing and i kind of understand where they're coming from but at the same time i i don't i don't like that this is just kind of serving min-maxers more because my whole thing with min-maxing is you know it it's good to build an optimal build you know that's that's fun but at the same time it's also fun to pick something that's suboptimal, because 5th edition is not a system where there are wrong answers. Now, you can go on and on on the forums about what is or is not a wrong answer. Maybe something doesn't feel as good as something else when you actually get it on the table and are playing. Um, But for the most part, you as a player, can survive and thrive with whatever class you choose. I played as a PHB Ranger from level 1 all the way up through about level 12 to 15. Somewhere in there was where we uh, switched things around. And I had a blast. I had an amazing time. And the base PHB Ranger with no... Extra stuff, you know, no other stuff from Xanathar's Guide, no uh, Unearthed Arcana, revised ranger, none of the stuff that's in this book, none of that. I had a perfectly fun time. I enjoyed it. I still love the ranger. I have shown you ways that, you know, make the ranger kind of obsolete. This book improves upon the ranger, but the base ranger, I had a ton of fun playing. And there's no reason why you at your table can't have a ton of fun playing with a quote unquote suboptimal race. Just, if you want to be a dwarf bard, you're not going to get that charisma bonus. So you're going to have to put more points in charisma. But you can take those points from, you know dexterity or sorry you can take those points from strength or constitution depending on you know what you're looking to do with a particular bard because you know that you get those bonuses as a dwarf so you don't have to worry if your constitution ends up being a 10 instead of a 12 because you're going to get the two-point bump you just kind of rearrange your points Or you rearrange your dice if you're rolling your stats. Or you rearrange, you know, what goes where in the standard array, depending on how you do it. Um, It's it's not that difficult to play a suboptimal race. Um, And it can even be interesting the dimension that your character can take on. I'll use Spoonie as an example. Uh, In the game that I was running with him, he was playing a dwarf bard. Now, there are people out there who will tell you that you should only play a human or a half elf or an elf when you're being a bard, uh, just because of the the way that the bonuses work out. So dwarves don't get the kind of bonuses that bards typically have, and you know dwarf bards don't really exist in people's uh, cultural consciousness. I know this from trying to find a miniature for a dwarf bard when we first started this game. I I was doing miniatures for everyone, and so I was looking for, like, a dwarf bard. Very hard to come by. I basically had to take, like, a fighter, because he had uh, a crossbow, and say, you know, your character uses a crossbow, this guy's a crossbow, it works. Are you okay? Like, is this this cool? He's like, yeah, that, that works fine. So that's what we ended up going with. His character is perfectly fine. Like he he's a bard. He does bard stuff. He he has not lost out on any situation where he can uh charm something that I thought the party was going to kill. That's, you know, he he's still a bard. He can still do all the bard stuff. Could he maybe do it with a couple more points added to the final total with an elf or a half elf? Sure. But he wanted to play a dwarf bard. And it also gives him this weird added dimension where he's also kind of the party tank. Because he is a a valor bard. So he has proficiency with shields. Uh, he's wearing medium armor. And, you know, he, he's using an axe because he, he had the proficiency as a dwarf. And he has a high enough constitution that it, it doesn't matter. So they don't have a fighter in the group or a cleric. They've got Valor Bard, a monk, and a rogue. The um, I don't remember what the monk is, but the rogue is a uh, arcane trickster. So yeah, there there's no tank, or there's no traditional tank, but he ends up working as a tank because of the dwarven features that he has, the dwarven you know racial features. So it allows you to in a lot of ways have your cake and eat it too and you know play multiple roles in a party that is not necessarily the D, you know perfect caster dps healer tank role um you you, you don't necessarily need that when you've got you know stuff like here's a here's a dwarf bard who has a bonus to his constitution, so he's got he's he's a little bit beefier. He's got more hit points. So doing this, you, you're going to get a lot of munchkiny characters at the table from what would otherwise not be a munchkiny character. And by the way, being able to you know have the have the perfect stats every single time is not going to encourage a lot of creative thinking at the table. You're not going to have your fallbacks. Like, again, to to use that example, well, if the charm doesn't work, if I, you know, flub this roll here, I can always fall back on the fact that I can swing an axe and smash this thing with, you know, melee. If instead of that, Spoonie just changed the traits and, you know, said, okay, instead of the constitution bonus, I want a charisma bonus. It's going to take away some of his potential to tank in that case. So it's really, it. you know, it, it's weighing the, the pros and cons. Um, and honestly... Honestly, I don't see it as a big enough deal for someone to be like, eh, "I really want to be a uh I really want to be a dragonborn, but I really want the dexterity bonus so I can be the best possible monk." Just be a dragonborn monk. Like what's what's the worst thing that could happen? Honestly, I've played sub I've played suboptimal characters before. Suboptimal is actually very hard to say, by the way. I played a uh, Kieran Devitt when I made him. That's not an optimal character. He's a glass cannon. His constitution is arguably way too low because I was going for a rogue multi-class, and so I had to have, uh, you know, certain intelligence for what I was trying to do, uh, high enough wisdom and dexterity as a ranger. I ended up having to dump both strength and, to a certain extent, constitution. I still had a ton of fun playing Kieran. I might rebuild Kieran at some point. Uh, there's certainly other options that I could go for there, but still, you know, I, I had a a ton of fun playing that particular game. Uh, for for anyone wondering what page we're on with this particular um, this particular rant that I'm going off on, this would be page seven and eight of. Um, uh, Tasha's cauldron is where this, uh, you know, changing of a particular, you know, ch- changing of, um, racial features comes in and th- there's other stuff that you can do. Some of it makes sense. Like, you know, you can switch out your, uh, your racial proficiencies as far as tools and weapons. Um, even that, even that's a little bit suspect, like I don't know. Do doing this allows you as like an elf who's using a a, a non martial uh, class? It allows you to use a longsword if you want to. It, it's it's an interesting feature that allows you to you know make some unique choices. Uh, so I say don't monkey around with the races too much. Just in fact, at my table, I'm not going to let anyone muck with the races. Uh, you you get what you get. Uh, if you want to play a certain race, then play a certain race. Don't just make a dwarf a reskinned elf. Don't just make a gnome a reskinned dwarf. Uh, you know, you play with the cards you're dealt at the end of the day, I'm not making you roll dice in order. We're either going to roll and assign, or we're going to do standard array or point by. Those are the three options that I like the best. Um, from a DM's perspective. From a player's perspective, I would absolutely love at some point to roll my dice in order. Um, but from a DM's perspective, that just it makes everyone at the table happier if I do that. So we are going to, uh, you know, do that at my table. Don't worry about if, you know, you want a bonus to dexterity when you get a bonus to charisma, it's not going to matter at the end of the day. I'm not going to try and hammer you. So that's enough of that particular bitch fest, because there's a lot of good stuff to actually get to here. Um, Real quick, one of the one of the good things I want to get to here. One of the cool guides that it gives you here as a GM is if a player goes through a major change, uh, just in character, and because of that major change, they then want to change their subclass. So, like, the example it gives you here is an Oath of Devotion paladin failed to stop a demonic horde from ravaging her homeland. After spending a night in sorrowful prayer, she rises the next morning with the features of the Oath of Vengeance, ready to hunt down the horde. That's cool. That makes for an awesome moment in a game where a player discovers that, you know, they've been doing one thing one way. Now they need to do it another way, and this is just a change in a subclass. Uh, sometimes people do this by multi-classing, which is also a cool thing in game. Uh, but you know, if if a change in something in your character's life would naturally spur on a change in focus of how they, uh, you know, ha- how they use their skills. Um, stuff like this is cool, and basically, you just get rid of all of the old stuff and replace it with the new stuff. Um, it's it's just kind of, it's a retcon, but, you know, it makes a lot more sense with the divine classes because, you know, you're, you're changing your oath, you're changing the way that you're, um, or you're changing kind of what you're devoted to or, or what you've sworn an oath to. And so the stuff that you got from the one oath would naturally go away and then the new stuff would come in. Yes, yes, Elfie, it's like changing your major in college. And as someone who did that four times, uh, I can tell you, I wish it were that simple. I did graduate in four years, though, so there's that. That's what happens when your final major was your minor the whole time. You're able to do stuff like that, which is absolute nonsense. On paper, I should have gone to college for six years, but I went for four. I also don't have a minor, though. I just have a Bachelor in the bachelor of the Arts in Philosophy. That's my major, no minor. Graduated cum laude. That stuff doesn't matter anymore, though, because I'm 25 years old and I work in an office. So, on to classes and subclasses. Now, something that, you know, those of you who buy a lot of D&D books and are very entrenched in this hobby might be disappointed with is that this book is largely reprints of other material. Uh, This is a gathering of stuff from the Sword Coast Adventure Guide, uh, the Eberron campaign setting and Unearthed Arcana into actual canon, this stuff is usable in Adventure League, which is why they print stuff like this. Uh, For anyone who just does home games and isn't familiar with Adventure League, like um, myself, I've never played Adventure League. But from what I understand, to make Adventure League characters you're only allowed to use the player's handbook plus one other book. So you can't pull, you know, your your class from Unearthed Arcana and you, uh, you know, use spells from Sword Coast Adventure Guide and use the player's handbook. You also can't use the Unearthed Arcana because it's playtest material. It's not official. Yet. Uh, so collecting a bunch of stuff in this book makes things a lot easier on people who want to do Adventure League stuff. Because if your options are, you know, you're playing the Artificer, which is here on the screen, um, you'd be stuck with just the Eberron book and the Player's Handbook, which is not ideal at all. Ideally, you want something like this and the Player's Handbook, or Xanathar's in the Player's Handbook hong Su is a good example of this. He is purely Player's Handbook and Xanathar's Guide. Um, Actually, that's not true because he has uh, Green Flame Blade and Booming Blade, which are in this book. Um, He is mostly those two books. If I traded out a couple cantrips, then we'd be golden. But that's why this is a lot of reprinted material. And yes, it's all in one easy guide now. So, uh, the Artificer. This is a cool class. And this is not a class that I thought was going to be cool when I first looked at it. Uh, because, as you guys know, I am not much of a caster fan. I like my martial classes. So, when it comes to something like this, I'm thinking, oh, great, another magic user. Kinda. But not really. Well, yes, it's another magic user. No, it's not just a magic user. Which is ultimately what I look for when I'm, you know, kind of stepping into the arcane side of things. The more cynical among you will probably say that I just want to swing a sword. You'd be completely fair in saying that. But... You know, I also like to feel useful in multiple different situations. Um, And if I went like a full-on wizard uh, who could only use a quarter staff or a dagger or something like that, if someone closed the distance on me, if I were out of spells and someone closed the distance on me, uh, I'd feel like a complete moron. Because, you know, what am I going to do? Hit you with my staff for... A d6 damage uh, that I probably have like a minus one on because I dumped uh, strength. What What's that going to do for me? You know, I like to have a backup plan, um, which for me usually ends up being my, my first plan is hit things with sword. And my backup plan is I can shoot you with magic or a bow. I think it might be a heritage thing cuz I'm bringing it up again. Conan uh very rarely fought from a distance. Conan was always, you know, up in in the battle. Uh and that's very much where my kind of, you know, fantasy inspiration comes from. Sword and sorcery, stuff like Conan the Barbarian. I like swinging a sword. My favorite Lord of the Rings character is Aragorn for that reason. Swinging a sword's cooler than shooting a bow. I'm sorry. I like Green Arrow as much as the next guy, but, you know, the, I like swords more than bows. There's a reason why I'm trying to be a blacksmith. Swords are cool. And speaking of blacksmithing, that's why I love this so much, because crafting in 5th Edition is just so anemic and, and crappy And they do it because they don't want you burning proficiencies on like a side gig. And they don't want you to be able to crank out super expensive weapons so that you can basically break the economy by selling your own stuff. So I get it, but at the end of the day, I'm not playing, you know, my, my blacksmith character My, my fighter who's a blacksmith, I'm not playing that character so I can sell weapons. I'm playing that character so I have the cool kind of side thing of I am a master of the blade and I'm a master of the forge. Uh, All of my weapons are things that I have created myself. All of my armor is stuff that I have created myself. That's what I want to do. That's... That's awesome to me. That's an interesting, cool little hook for a character in my mind. A master of the blade and a master of the forge. 5e doesn't really let you do that. Except for now you kind of can with the artificer. So you have a d8 uh, hit die, which is not bad. You could certainly do worse. Elfie, I I need you to explain what you mean by Samwise Gamgee. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what what you're going for there, um, because I think I breezed past it. Uh, So you need to remind me of what that is. I know who Samwise Gamgee is, obviously, but where he enters the conversations, what I'll need to be... And I don't know if you can take on enemies with a frying pan, but you can with a cast iron skillet. So. What the Artificer gets you, uh, for anyone unfamiliar, D8 hit die. um, Proficiency with light and medium armor and shields. Simple weapon proficiency. Other classes let you pick up different proficiencies, though, which is cool. Uh, Constitution and intelligence. And, um... You'll also be proficient with firearms if you are in a uh, setting that allows you to have firearms, which I think moving forward, either everything I do is going to be barbarians and sword and sorcery, sword and sandal, like, you know, basically Conan the Barbarian, or it's going to be Renaissance stuff um, where, where firearms are allowed. Uh, Those are the two options I'm going to have moving forward in my games. We're either going to go super gritty or we're going crazy uh, renaissance style fantasy. And then um, from there it talks about multi-classing the art... You know, multi-class. We're going to do a really deep dive on the Artificer this Saturday. So I'm going to kind of gloss over some of the uh, class features here for just a second and talk about some of the subclasses here. So I'm going to go past a lot of this. Uh, we'll go past the infusions and stuff like that and just kind of talk about the subclasses. So uh, first up we have Alchemist and uh you know that's you guys know what an alchemist is they they use chemicals and stuff like that you make elixirs and tonics and stuff like that and then apologies Excuse me, I'm just falling apart tonight. So, excuse me. After the Alchemist, you have the Armorer. And uh, don't be mistaken here, the Armorer is not like a Battlesmith. That's actually called a Battlesmith. Uh, That's a subclass we'll get to in a little bit. The Armorer is basically Fantasy Iron Man. You gain proficiency with heavy armor and Smith's tools. And you get an enchanted suit of armor that lets you have basically repulsor beams and stuff like that. And I believe it even lets you fly at a certain point. Or you might be able to learn the fly spell. Let me actually take a look here and see if you can learn the fly spell. Let's see. And he's gone again. I should wait for him to fall asleep and then, then turn it on let's see okay so no you can't learn the fly spell as a uh, as an artificer but I feel like at some point it lets you it lets you fly so you're like your gauntlets you you basically have a thunder punch uh, you've got a shield like a magical shield lightning launcher. Um, Dampening field, which lets you basically go into stealth mode. Let's see what we got here. And you've got a couple different, you know, like Guardian and Infiltrator that give you different things that you can do. Um... But yeah, you're basically fantasy Iron Man, which on one hand sounds pretty cool, but on the other hand, and this is totally a me thing, I get super annoyed when people try to recreate superheroes in a fantasy world. I don't know why. Sometimes I can be a bit of a genre snob. But I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge when, like, the crossover comes in. Um, you know, for example, if someone wants to play a martial artist in a Western game, there's precedent for that. Uh, there, there's, there's space in a Western game to play a martial artist. Um, but when it comes to something like this, you're playing D&D and someone really just wants to be Iron Man... I don't know how I feel about that. It feels a little bit like they're trying to break your game somewhat. Or at least not kind of like consider the setting. And stuff like that's actually kind of important to me. Like if we're playing in a super... If I set things up as like super dark and gritty... I I had this in my very first campaign. and, And this is something that involved a dear friend of mine... Uh, And we've talked about it since, and it's all good now. The very first game I ran, uh, for anyone who hasn't heard me talk about it, was set in the midst of this brewing conflict of a dying empire uh, that just become more and more oppressive as it wore on. And so there's going to be a lot of political intrigue and craziness and stuff like that. And one of my players brought to me a bard who was a merfolk wearing a bunny suit. And he called himself DJ floppy ears, which again, this, this was Austin. We've talked about it on the show. You guys love Austin and know Austin. I love Austin. Austin's great. In hindsight, I probably should have let him break it out. But there was something about that that rubbed me the wrong way. I'm just like, that's not in that. That doesn't fit the setting. It doesn't work. It doesn't work with what we're doing here. And so if you're, if you're trying to break the game in that way, or just kind of like do your own thing in that way, it's kind of uncool. However, it's in the book. It's there. Uh, As long as you don't lean super hard into the Iron Man thing, I'll forgive a couple I am Iron Mans or, you know, just kind of like cute Iron Man references. I'll laugh. You know, I'll I'll go along with it. But if you're trying if you show up with a character named Anthony Snark or something like that, I'm going to I'm going to tell you to make another character or take this more seriously. Maybe I'm just being a baby. I don't know. But that's, that's my whole thing about, you know, playing with the uh, particular, or playing with this particular subclass. It, it's a very cool and very powerful subclass, though. Works super well. Um, very good at what it does. So I will not uh, begrudge anyone who wants to use this class, because it's kind of awesome. It does a lot of really cool things. I've been laboring on a couple very specific things here. Uh, A lot of this stuff, you know, I have very strong opinions on. Some of it I'm just going to gloss over. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, Next up, though, we have the Artillerist. Basically, if you want to build cannons and blow shit up, uh, this is your subclass. Uh, You know, you, you can just make a lot of blowing stuff up. And then there's the Battlesmith. Uh, Now, the Battlesmith is really cool. One thing I want to point out is you get, like, a steel... It's called a Steel Defender. It's basically a metal pet that you made. Which is pretty cool. Uh, We're going to go over the Battlesmith in greater detail on Saturday. So, um, I'm going to skip over this as well, just for the sake of not kind of treading the same ground. So we'll, we'll skip over that, and uh, you know we'll talk about Infusions on Saturday as well. Uh, we're pretty much good here as far as the Artificer's concerned. It's going to move a lot quicker from here on since I don't have to explain entire classes now. Uh, from there we go to Barbarian. Uh, you've got a couple of different... Uh, so they, they've added these optional class features here, which kind of fix certain features of classes that are more or less useless. Uh, we'll talk in greater detail about that with the ranger, because it does a lot of good things for the ranger. So with the barbarian here, you've got the Path of the Beast. Uh, this basically lets you be kind of like a gangrel, but in D&D. Uh, so you take on some animalistic aspects, and you can like use claws and fangs for uh, your weapons, essentially. It's, it's pretty cool. Um honestly I'd play it it seems pretty awesome. You can like turn yourself into Wolverine, which I think is cool especially if you like take a take a dip into monk yeah and you got your Wolverine and that's I'm totally contradicting myself <laughs> again, if you do this and you are very clearly trying to be Wolverine, I'm going to have some issues with you. Uh, same thing if you do any of the, like, Batman builds, but you're trying to you're trying very hard to be Batman in D&D. It's going to be an issue. But the option is here, and it's, it's pretty cool. A lot of people seem to like it. Then there's the Path of Wild Magic, which basically lets you be, like, a Feywild Barbarian. Ah, uh, you're able to you know use some wild magic and stuff like that. There's you know uh, a shortened, abbreviated wild magic table here. I don't really see the point of this one, but if it, if it sounds cool to you, it's there. Uh, then you know you got some additional bard spells here. Different kind of inspiration. And then you've got the College of Creation, um, which basically lets you animate objects and stuff like that. It's fine, I guess, if that's what you're into. Um, a lot of it seems to be kind of situational. And then the the real standout here as far as bards go is the College of Eloquence, which basically uh, turns you into like Pericles or Socrates or someone like that who's just a real wordsmith, a very eloquent speaker. If you don't necessarily want to be like a musician bard, uh, you want to be more of a grand storyteller or a grand orator. Um, you want to be someone who's basically, if you want to like set yourself up as like a cult of personality politician or something like that, uh, College of Eloquence is definitely there for you because you're able to weave magic into your words in a really interesting and unique way. And it works really well. Um, It allows you at third level to treat any persuasion or deception checks with a roll of nine or lower as if it were a 10, unless you critically fail that's that's a me ruling, not necessarily a book ruling. Critical fail is a failure um, So yeah I mean like if you've got a if you've got a plus five at this point to your uh, charisma actually no at third level that's pretty much impossible. So if you've got a, a plus three or plus four to charisma uh, the lowest you can roll is a 13, which isn't bad. That's, that's pretty good, and then once you get up to the higher echelons, you know, once you've got, like, a plus 10 to your persuasion and deception, uh, which is definitely possible with the Bard, um, you, you, your minimum rolls a 20. I mean, come on. You're, you're basically unstoppable at that point. And that's just for, like, persuasion and deception. But those two can get you a very long way. So, yeah, College of Eloquence, man. And then uh, moving on from there, we've got some cleric domains. One of the cool ones here, uh, in my opinion, is the order domain, uh, which basically... This is like if Walker, Texas Ranger were a cleric. You're you're basically, like, this is the class that Odo from DS9 would be. You are a, uh... Your, your oath is to justice. Like, this guy here, his shield's a sheriff's badge. That's a little bit cheesy, but you know what? I like it. I like it a lot. You get heavy armor proficiency. Uh, I wish they would give you martial weapons, but I... I guess I understand why they don't. You can get those as a, uh, you can take a feat to get them. So it's not that bad, but I understand why they pretty much leave that to war domain. But still, it'd be nice to have. This is one of those where, you know, if you're an elf and you have the long sword proficiency from being an elf, this is where that comes in handy because you can be sword and board. Yeah. And you can get like, uh, you know, channel divinity to add an extra D8 psychic damage to your attacks. Um, Yeah, there's all kinds of cool stuff there. And you got peace domain and twilight domain, uh, which I've not really delved into very deeply. I've never played a cleric, though. It's one, you know, I'd, I'd be down to play a cleric. Uh, But again, I'd end up playing like a war cleric or something like that because I got to swing my swords. It's just the way it is. And then in the druid category, you've got uh, the the main one here is the circle of spores. Uh, You can be a fungus druid if that's really what you want to do. And there's the circle of stars. Um, let's see, is this one psionic? No, not necessarily, but it's more, you know, cosmic than the other druids. Then you have circle of wildfire. This one's a little bit controversial because it's not as powerful was as it was in the unearthed arcana. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. That's going to happen. Uh, Unearthed Arcana stuff can be very, very broken from time to time. So I understand why they nerfed it. Um, It's not that bad. Actually, I think I'm thinking of a different one. I think that's a sorcerer subclass that I'm thinking of. Um, Either way, you've got like fire stuff now. That's a druid. So, you know, there's that. Catch your blessings, druids. That's actually not fair, because druids are pretty versatile. Uh, Druids aren't bad. I'd love to play a druid someday. And if I were to play a druid, I would probably forego my gots to swing my sword thing. So, yeah, there's that. Fighter, now. Um, There's a couple things added here as fighters... Uh, nice nice painting here of an initiate fighting that's that's actually pretty cool I like that it's a good rendition and what this th- there's a couple things added here as far as fighting styles go um this makes a few things uh just kind of different for different fighters so um these are some options. you got blind fighting. Uh, interception. Which kind of, sort of gives you, um, I don't know, it's kind of like a Jedi blocking uh, blaster shots, but you can do it with a sword. Because it only requires a shield, a simple, or a martial weapon. And basically you reduce damage... Uh, taken by 1d10 plus your proficiency bonus. So, you know, you can end up reducing a good amount of damage with that, especially at higher levels. Superior technique, you learn one maneuver of your choice from the Battlemaster archetype. Um, Throne weapon fighting, If you want to do it, it's there. You want to play Bullseye? I keep going back to all these Marvel archetypes. It's been planted in my head now from the Iron Man. And then there's one in the Rogue subclass that's basically Psylocke. Uh, So that's not going away anytime soon. But, you know, thrown weapons, if you want to do it, it's there. I don't see the point of playing a fighter who's throwing weapons. Um, I guess it's another variation of the, like, Dexterity Fighter So you could do it, but there's other places where I feel like it's better to be a thrown weapon fighter, uh, namely Ranger, which we'll get to. And then the last one is unarmed fighting. And what this does is basically firmly plants the flag of you don't need that homebrew, homebrew pugilist class or you don't need to play a monk with all of the flavor taken out. Uh, you can be a Battlemaster Fighter and be a Pugilist. Uh, you can maybe take like a dip in Rogue just to get some of the skill proficiencies and stuff like that. But ultimately, this is just kind of killing that one subclass that's super popular. Or the one class that's super popular online. I can't remember who it was that made it. But this just this lets you be a Pugilist without having to use unofficial material, which is cool. I'm I'm cool with that. And basically what that lets you do is Unarmed Strike deals bludgeoning damage equal to 1d6 plus your strength modifier on a hit. If you aren't wielding any weapons or a shield when you make the attack roll, the d6 becomes a d8. At the start of each of your turns, you can deal 1d4 bludgeoning damage to one creature grappled by you. Pretty cool. And then there's Martial Versatility, which can be added at fourth level. Uh, Whenever you reach this level in a class that grants you an Ability Score Improvement feature, you can do one of the following. Replace Fighting Style, you know, with another one. Or Replace uh, Battle Master Maneuvers. And there's a couple new maneuvers here. Uh, Ambush. Let's you expend a superiority dice when you make a stealth check, um, and you can add that to uh, your your stealth roll. Bait and switch: use a superior, superiority dice to switch places with um, a creature that you're within five feet of. Let's you you switch places with a friend, basically. Because it has to be a willing creature that isn't incapacitated. And it doesn't provoke attack of opportunity. Brace. uh, When a creature you see moves into reach... uh, You can use your reaction to expend a superiority dice. Make one attack against the creature using that weapon... If the attack hits, add the superiority die to the weapon's damage roll. So basically, if they move past you but aren't stopping, um, or if you have the reaction um, as they move into your territory, on their turn, you can basically, you know, make the attack then. Commanding presence, um, charisma, Intimidation, performance, or persuasion, you can use a superiority die to beef that up. Grappling Strike, after you hit a creature with a melee attack on your turn, you can expend a superiority dice and try to grapple the target as a bonus action. And you add the the superiority dice to the strength check. That, and then quick toss here, those are designed for the the unarmed fighting style, I'm sure. Uh, You can expend a superiority die and make a ranged attack with a weapon that has the throne property. You can draw the weapon. Okay, so that's more if you are going for the, like, throne. If you're doing the throwable weapons thing. So if you're throwing hand axes a lot, you can do that. Um and and like toss a hand axe as a bonus action. Again, that's cool. Once you've got like three attacks and you're using that to make like a fourth attack, yeah. Go for it. You wanna feel like you're, you know, throwing multiple throwing stars? Yeah. It's cool. And then for the martial archetypes that are added here, you've got the Psy Warrior. Uh, This is the first of these kind of psionic classes, uh, or explicitly psionic classes, because you could make the argument that the uh, the College of Eloquence could be interpreted as psychic or psionic. But this is explicitly uh, psionic. And there's a lot of added psionics in this book that makes me think They might be priming the pump for 5e Dark Sun. Especially when we talk about spells, we'll get there. Um, But yeah, this is... um, It's making me excited. I think they they might actually go through with it. There's definitely demand there. There's demand for Planescape, and there's demand for uh, Dark Sun... And I'd love to see it. You know, 5e has done a lot of really cool things. Some, some pretty unexpected stuff. So it would be nice if we got a uh, 5e guide to Athos. Especially now that we have this uh, psionics kind of hard-coded in here. And then you have a rune knight who is able to kind of magically imbue their swords with, uh, you know, runes. Like you can do in The Witcher. And then here, this is more of kind of the filler that we talked about. And a lot of these builds are not very good. But this is basically just an explanation of how to make certain types of characters with the Battlemaster fighter. So, you know, you can, you know, like a, a bodyguard would have interception and protection. Uh, duelist. gladiator. This is one that I don't really like. I understand where they're coming from, but if you're going to do a gladiator, be the Bard college of swords and maybe take a dip in fighter or be a champion fighter with high charisma. Um, th- this seems kind of unnecessary in my opinion. Especially with all of these feats. That's a lot of feats. So unless you're going variant human, that's tons and tons of feats. you I know fighters get a lot more uh, ability score increases than, the, than other classes, but that's a lot. You might only get one stat to 20 with that. Hopolite. Some of this, like, there's almost no reason to take some of these feats. I know, like, if you're a Hopolite, you're using a polearm, sentinel, and polearm master, and and shield master makes sense, but y- the other ones, no. But really, this is here to explain kind of the uh, the pugilists. and and how you make that, which makes a lot of sense. Um, Again, a lot of feats. That's a lot of feat investment there. I'd say Tavern Brawler and Savage Attacker, maybe Grappler as well. The other ones you could probably do without, um, in my opinion. Skirmisher, that's just crap. If you want a Skirmisher, build a Scout Rogue. Build a scout rogue and take a little dip into fighter. And then monk. Um, here's something I don't really understand. And I am not at all well read on the monk. I have run for a monk, but monks are a class that I don't really go near. Even being someone who likes, you know, martial classes. Because monks are very, very hard to play early on, and they don't get a lot of cool stuff as far as items. Um, so they they're very they're designed for a very specific purpose. If you want to like, if you want to be Bruce Lee, you play a monk basically, um, and that's really the only flavor you can have as a monk. But this dedicated weapon thing, uh, it it sounds almost like you could use it as kensei for other uh, types of monks. You, like almost, you could have a kensei weapon, um, and you can use it, it says you use a variety of weapons as monk weapons, not just simpler melee weapons, not or not just simple melee weapons and short swords. Whenever you finish a short or long rest, you can touch one weapon focus your focus your chi on it and then count that weapon as a monk weapon until you use this feature again but it has to meet these criteria it has to be simple or martial makes sense you must be proficient with it so it says you can use either you know simple or it, it wants you to use more than just simple melee weapons and short swords makes sense but you must be proficient with it. So unless you're an elf or a dwarf or someone like that where you get a racial proficiency with a particular weapon, uh, your options are simple weapons or a short sword. And those already have, like, unless you take a special feat that lets you be proficient with other weapons, I don't see the point of this. Unless you've got racial weapon proficiency. So this seems very, very much pointless. Uh, anyone feel free to correct me on this if I'm wrong. It also can't be a heavy weapon or a special weapon. So you can't do like a great sword or something like that. But yeah, if anyone's willing to, you know, tell me how I'm wrong about this... Uh, feel free, but this seems kind of pointless. And again, if you want to be like a weapons master, be a Kensei monk. It's the best kind of monk you can be. Honestly. Um, I don't see much of a point in being anything other than a Kensei monk. Uh, unless you want to like Hadouken people. But yeah, that's, that's there. Uh, the way of mercy Let's you be a little bit more of a healer as well, which is cool. Uh, Way of the Astral Self. Again, another direct Marvel parallel, because if you want to be Doctor Strange, um... It seems like you'd multi-class, uh, Wizard or Sorcerer and Way of the Astral Self Monk. Because this basically lets you astrally project... So, yeah, that seems very much inspired by uh, specifically the Doctor Strange movies, because I think the the comics don't necessarily lean into the martial arts aspect of Doctor Strange as much as the the movies do. So, yeah, that is a product of the MCU. It's cool. It seems to work really well. Um, But, yeah. Again, another Marvel parallel there. Paladins. Got a couple different fighting styles. Blind fighting, uh, like the fighter got. Blessed warrior uh, lets you get two cleric cantrips uh, that count as paladin spells and charisma as your spellcasting ability. And then when you level, you can replace one cantrip with another one. It's kind of like magic initiate, but for paladins. I don't know if I... would waste a fighting style on that. And then you can get interception as well. Um, Which I guess is useful if you, as the, like, because paladins are defenders as well as healers. So it makes sense for them to be able to say, you know, I'm going to use my reaction to hold up my shield and block uh, those things from hitting the wizard who for some reason is up here and is very vulnerable right now. And then you can use your channel divinity to regain, um, spell slot, which is no higher than half your proficiency bonus rounded up. And then the amount of times you can use it per long rest is tied to your level, which is a weird thing that happens quite a bit in this book. Um, I don't know why they changed it. People online have speculated that there's a bunch of new people at Wizards who aren't particularly thrilled with certain aspects of 5e design. Uh, but it just kind of makes everything a mishmash of weird rules. Uh, there's definitely some things in 5e that are not great. Uh, 5e as a whole, though, I love. So that's not a knock on 5e. It's No system is perfect. but Wizards is not going to put out a 6E anytime soon. Not until sales of 5E begin to drop off. And they're not going to do like a 5.5E. They're just going to keep doing stuff like this as long as the, uh, the 5E train keeps a chugging. Wouldn't surprise me if 5E ends up lasting as long as 2E did. We probably have a full 10 years of this, which means we be getting three and three years in a couple months, better part of four years. Yeah. So that's just my prediction. 2024, we might get a six E. Maybe. And uh, as far as the oaths go here, you've got the Oath of Glory and the Oath of the Watchers, which I haven't read up much on, uh, but they're there. Ranger. Um, This is where a lot of the kind of fixing of the PHB Ranger comes in. uh, Because there's a ton of these optional class features that let you just kind of get rid of the PHB Ranger stuff that's useless. Um, So Deft Explorer replaces natural Explorer. And at first level you choose one of your skill proficiencies, uh, which lets you double the proficiency bonus for any ability checks you make that use the skill. And it gives you two additional languages. Uh, At 6th level, your walking speed increases by 5 feet, and you gain a climbing and swimming speed equal to your walking speed. And then at 10th level, as an action, you give yourself a number of temporary hit points equal to 1d8 plus your wisdom modifier, and you can use this action a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. Again, more of that weirdness. And in addition, whenever you uh, finish a short rest... Whenever you finish a short rest, your exhaustion level, if any, is decreased by one. So yeah, you basically give yourself a d8 plus wisdom modifier of temporary hit points, which is cool. It's like Armor of Agathis, And you've got favored foe, which replaces favored enemy... Uh, when you hit a creature with an attack roll, you can call in your mystical bond with nature to mark the target as your favored enemy for one minute till you lose concentration. Um, it basically replaces Hunter's Mark. First time on each of your turns that you hit your favored enemy and deal damage to it, including when you mark it, you can increase that damage by 1d4. So instead of giving you an extra d6, it just lets you bump up your damage by a little bit, um, by, by 1d4. And the damage increases to a D6 at 6 level and a D8 at 14th level, uh, which is an improvement on Hunter's Mark because Hunter's Mark does not increase... The damage doesn't scale as you level up. Uh, if you cast it at higher levels, it's just a longer duration. So it's good that they kind of did that for you. And that way you might not necessarily have to take Hunter's Mark. And by 14th level, uh, if you are a hunter-ranger and you've got Colossus Slayer, uh, you're dealing 2d8 extra damage on a foe. Some additional uh, ranger spells here. Additional fighting styles, thrown weapon fighting. This is where thrown weapon fighting makes more sense to me, if you're a ranger that does as a fighter just my two cents because rangers i think of as more kind of skirmishers um kind of moving moving swiftly as they're attacking and then druidic warrior um it's kind of the same as the uh the blessed warrior from paladin Uh, you get to pick two druid cantrips this does let you get shillelagh though which is nothing to sneeze at. So, yeah, you could take Shillelagh and then uh, get Arm Master and be pretty badass, honestly. So that's nothing to sneeze at, really. Uh, spellcasting focus—you can use a Druidic focus. Um, this is kind of like you know bringing in more of the rangers' roots, where rangers and druids used to be more closely tied together. And then primal awareness as a replacement for primeval awareness. Uh, You focus your awareness through the interconnections of nature, learning additional spells, when you reach certain levels in this class if you don't already know them. As shown in the Primal Awareness Spells table, these spells don't count against the number of ranger spells you know. So, at 3rd level, you get Speak with Animals for free. Uh, Beast Sense at 5th, Speak with Plants at ninth, Locate Creature at 13th, Commune with Nature at 17th. Not great, but not bad. However, you can cast each of these spells once without er, expending a spell slot. Once you cast the spell in this way, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest. So you basically get to cast these spells once for free. Not bad. You get martial versatility here as well, and Nature's Veil, which replaces Hide and play in Plain Sight. Um, Drawing the powers of nature to hide yourself from view briefly as a bonus action, you can magically become invisible, along with any equipment you're wearing or carrying until the start of your next turn. This works well with another magic item that's introduced in this book, so some great synergies here. And as far as subclasses, you've got the Fey Wanderer, uh, so kind of a more fairy-like uh, ranger here. If that's something you're interested in doing. otherworldly oh, that's part of it then swarm keeper if you want to like have a lot of bees if you want to be the pain from metal gear solid 3 you, you can do that here i don't you can't make a tommy gun but you can send swarming insects after people and then some guides uh, about be- beastmaster companions and we get to rogue Rogue here, uh, Steady Aim as an optional class feature. Uh, You can give yourself advantage on your next attack roll on the current turn. Uh, So this is basically like taking a bead from uh, Savage Worlds. You can spend an action to give yourself advantage so that your sneak attack... You know, if you don't have anyone adjacent or you're not a swashbuckler, uh, you can spend an action to basically ensure that you get a sneak attack. Which would be cool for ambushing people. Then roguish archetypes here. You've got the Phantom, which is kind of like an undead rogue, almost. Pretty cool. And then the Soul Knife. This is the Psylocke one. In fact, right here, it's all purple. That's Psylocke's psionic dagger. Yeah. There's a lot of Marvel Comics influence here. But I've got people who are playing Psyblades in... uh, games that I'm playing in so you know the side blades are pretty cool. And again, this feels like priming the pump for uh Dark Sun. Then we've got sorcerer. Um, there's a couple meta magic options here, some new spells and stuff like that. Another one that's kind of reminding me, giving me some Dark Sun vibes here is the Aberrant Mind Sorcerer, uh, which is basically a psionic sorcerer. And then you've got Clockwork Soul, which comes from uh, Eberron, uh, which basically, you know, lets you. I don't know, it's kind of like mechanical in a lot of ways. I'd have to read up more on that. But the main one there that sticks out to me is Aberrant Mind. Warlock here, you've got a couple new Eldritch Invocations and uh, Eldritch Versatility at 4th level. Uh, anytime you get an ability score improvement, you can replace a cantrip. Um, you can replace Pact Boon options. And if you're 12th level or higher, you can replace one spell from Mystic Arcanum with another Warlock spell of the same level. And then if you change your Pact Feature or your Pact Boon and lose uh, eligibility for your invocations, you can replace those immediately. And then, you know, there's some of these... Um, otherworldly patrons, the Fathomless, you're basically a warlock of Poseidon at that point. Fathomless warlock is really cool. <clears throat> if you're playing salt marsh, um, which anyone who plays with me might end up playing salt marsh pretty soon. Cause I have it. Uh, yeah, there's your, there's your Aquaman type character or If we're sticking with the Marvel theme, there's your Namor. And then there's the pact of the genie, which is also very cool because it lets you go into the lamp and you can take the party into the lamp to long rest. And then wizard, um, the, the big thing here is they packed a blade singer into this book. And then there's also, um, what's it called? Oh, Order of Scribes, which lets you have like a book companion who talks to you. And gives you some other stuff, but that's basically that. Uh, From there, we get into feats. A lot of this stuff just kind of gives you different stuff. Um, I just described feats in a very generic way there. There's a chef feat, which is interesting. Um, A lot of this is kind of based around the kind of damage that you do. Um, So like fighting initiate, you can get fighting style from uh, fighters if your class doesn't necessarily offer it, as long as you're proficient with uh, a martial weapon. Gunner lets you, you know, get proficiency with firearms if you don't have it. Um, poisoner, finally, you can do a little bit more with poisons if that's something you're interesting, interested in. Skill expert, you can finally have uh, expertise in skills if you're not a bard or a rogue, slasher, piercer, crusher, those all do, um, you know, you, you get to up an ability score and you get some extra stuff associated with that particular damage type. Like with slasher, you can grievously wound someone if you crit. And then their next turn, they have disadvantage, which is cool. Don't know if I'd spend a feat on it, but it's cool. Then from there, you get into this idea of group patrons. And what this does is just kind of give you an idea of, you know, if you want to run a campaign that's focused around we're all in a school or we're all part of a crime syndicate or you know, we work for a king or something like that. This gives you some ideas about how to, you know, work within those parameters. It also lets you know, uh, like, how to set that up yourself. Like, if instead of working for a crime syndicate, you want to run a crime syndicate, uh, that's, that's in here too. It even has specific quest types associated with the uh, various patrons, like here's the aristocrat quests, crime syndicate quests, obviously it's like, you know, assassination, heist, gang warfare, topple the powerful guilds. Um Real quick, just wanted to point this out, because unlike most of the art in this book, this piece is just ugly as crap. I thought these were like halflings on like a halfling-sized cart. I think they're supposed to be like regular people-sized, though. That's just ugly as sin. That's kind of gross. It's the only piece of bad art that I've seen, really. And we just move right along through here. There's a reference here to Sigil. In the city of Sigil, Guildmaster Rees realizes that finding capable recruits is one of the main challenges of being a patron. Makes me think that Sigil might be coming soon at some point, um, which would definitely be interesting. I'd love to see uh, Planescape. Even if it means no uh, Dark Sun, I think I'd like to see Planescape. And then here we've got some added spells um, which come from multiple different places. They're here in alphabetical order. Move through here. A lot of these are... You know, like, psionics-based. Some of them are just from other setting books and stuff like that. Let's get to the piece of art that I really, really want to show you guys here. There we go. Tasha's Mind Whip. For anyone who's super familiar with Dark Sun, this should all look very familiar to you. Now, the gnolls look a little bit different than they should. And I don't know if that's a drow or not, but drow or not in Aethys. Uh But the bone weapons, the obsidian dagger, people aren't necessarily clothed. It's in the desert and the dude's using psionics. That's Dark Sun. That's very, very Athasian. Gives me a, a spark of hope. There's all the possibility in the world they just put that in to, you know, make us make us dark sun people go, ooh, dark sun! But hopefully it means they're actually working on something, which would be cool. And you've got some magic items here. Um, this explains magic tattoos, which function basically like magic items. You have to be attuned to them. Uh, but some of these tattoos can be really cool. They can give you, like, Elemental resistance, um, give you other, you know, kinds of properties and stuff like that. And, uh, the, the rarer tattoos take up more space on you. The uh, more common ones are smaller. And the, what each tattoo does is explained here in, in the book. And there's some other items here. Uh, Like the barrier tattoo. Gives you bonus to your AC if you're not wearing armor. Uh, So at at the uncommon level, you're looking at 12 plus your dex modifier. Rare. Um, You're looking at 15 plus your dex modifier with a maximum of plus 2. And very rare, you have an AC of 18, which is... um, plate armor basically so yeah if you are like a monk or something like that or you know if you're just playing a class that doesn't have good ac and you want to save up for one of these bad boys and you want to spend the attunement slot it's there for you and it's a decent option And like this, uh, this blood fury tattoo. Uh, when you hit a creature with a weapon attack, you can expend a charge to deal an extra forty-six necrotic damage to the target. You're basically casting vampiric touch at that point. But it's anytime you hit with a weapon attack. And then if you get hit, you can. Um, use your reaction to make a melee attack against that creature with advantage. Now this is a this is a legendary item, so don't just give that out willy-nilly. There's some, you know, like magic flails shards, elemental essence shards from different uh, elemental planes. Mighty Servant of Luik-O, which is basically the Iron Giant Nature's mantle is the item I was talking about on the ranger area that lets you hide as a bonus action if you are lightly obscured, and you can use it as a spellcasting focus as a ranger or a druid. And then down here, um, you've got another one of these, like, big, powerful list items. The Teeth of Dalvernar. Uh, which are basically, like, dragon's teeth that do all kinds of crazy, weird things. They summon items and then give you effects. One of them summons a Tarask. Some nice art of Tasha and Mordenkainen playing wizard's chest. And then you've got some DM tools. And this is kind of where we're going to end uh, talking about these DM tools here. Uh, this is going to be the majority of our, our ending conversation here. Because uh, there's a section here about session zero. Now, session zero is a super important concept to get down. Um, however... A lot of the information here, you know, it's talking about social contracts and stuff like this. This is good stuff for a Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, This kind of stuff should be in the DMG. And if they're not going to put out a revised DMG or revised player's handbook, I guess it's okay for it to be here. But the kind of people who are reading this book are the kind of people who already know this stuff. And there've been multiple YouTube videos and stuff like that. This is a very common topic. Um, so it's a little bit unusual for it to be here. In my opinion, I understand the importance of it, but it seems like space filler. And I don't know. It's, it's not great. Um, Kind of rounding out the book, though, you've got a list of uh, rules for sidekicks. Uh, Basically, these are NPCs that can level up. Um, You know, if if your party needs a healer or something like that, uh, this would be a a resource that you could use if you want to have a uh, not a full on player character. So they don't overshadow the uh, actual players but it gives you some options and uh, helps give your players some versatility that they might be lacking. And you could have a warrior or a caster. And generally they're just they're they're not going to be as good as you as a player character as and that's the way they should be. Another cool tool here is just a list of kind of reactions that uh, different creature types may have to players or, or things that they uh, might want. So if you encounter a monster in the wild, they're not necessarily going to want to fight you immediately. They might be looking for something else. Um so here's just a couple of cool things. Then you've got some environmental hazards, a nice little list of, you know, in this given environment, these are things you can expect. Uh, the haunted one is super interesting because a lot of people wonder, you know, how do you add horror elements to a D&D game? And this gives you a lot more effects to, to play around with to make that flavor come to life. Scroll quickly through here, get to the very end of this section. Because there's some kind of big rules here. Excuse me. As far as um, certain things that could definitely happen over the course of a regular game. So we have rules about falling into water. Uh, Basically, if you fall into water or another liquid, you can use a reaction to make an athletics or acrobatics check to hit the surface head or feet first. On a successful check, uh, you take half damage from the fall. Falling onto a creature. If neither of the creatures are tiny... Uh, the second creature, the one that's getting falled onto or fallen onto, makes a uh, dc15 dexterity saving throw, or they'll be impacted by the falling creature and take any damage resulting from the fall. Um, you divide that damage evenly between the two players. And then the impacted creature is also knocked prone, unless it is two or more sizes larger than the falling creature. And then at the very end, you've got some puzzles. Uh, This is kind of the filleriest part. Because the puzzles, from what I understand, aren't that great. And in general, I don't use puzzles in my game because they're boring. I did a dungeon that was very puzzle-heavy with my Dark Sun game. And I think the players enjoyed it well enough. I don't think it was their favorite thing in the world, though. I definitely didn't like coming up with those puzzles. So what it taught me was I'm not going to use puzzles in my games anymore because I don't care to. I don't like coming up with them. Uh, I think it slows the game down, and I don't see the point. If you like them, though, they're here. Uh, So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Let's see what we got here. Well, yeah, the Riddler would beg to differ, but his puzzles are different. Also, I'm not the Riddler. I, you know what kind of game I like. I like Conan the Barbarian. I like Sword and Sorcery. There's going to be a lot of exploration and combat and roleplay, but not a lot of puzzles. Puzzles and traps, I just don't really care for all that much. Although traps, traps are cool. But uh, puzzles, no, not really my thing. Just not really into it. So yeah, that is Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. All in all, this is a great book. I love it. Well, love might be a strong word. Um, I like it. I like what it adds to the game. I like some of the utility it gives certain classes. That's that's good stuff. That's cool stuff. Uh, you can do some really interesting things. A lot of Marvel Comics characters are now uh, D&D canon because of what you can do with the rules here. So there's that, if that's what you're looking for in your game. But yeah, that's Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, I recommend it. If you are playing a lot of 5e and... You want to look at some different character options or, you know, see some different rules. This is the, you know, this is the rule expansion. So this is going to be your, you know, if you want to be completely up to date on all the current rules, it's essential in a way. So, yeah, that is going to do it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. Uh, guys, thank you so much for tuning in and uh, you know watching me take a look at this particular uh, book. Uh, thank you again to Namira and Spoonie for getting me Tasha's Cauldron of, of Everything. I love it. Just bumped my microphone there. And just to let you guys know what's coming up this week on uh, Saturday for Danishes and Dragons, we're going to be... Digging back into Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, because I am going to be making a character who is a battlesmith. Uh, I'm going to be re-examining an old character, Tiwan Valorum. We'll be talking a lot more about him, and I'll basically be rebuilding him using the rules here in Tasha's. So yeah, that's what we're doing on Saturday. Uh, let's build a battlesmith. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are looking forward to it too. Uh, So until next time, whether you rolled a one or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.